Dalinar Colon is perhaps one of the best written leaders ever, with massive character flaws and an emotional journey over three books that is absolutely heartbreaking and with a philosophy that I think we all can sort of get behind. Uh, we've discussed on this show his son Adolin and a little bit about their relationship, and we've explored the four-corner thematic relationship between uh, Dalinar, Amaram, Kaladin, and Moash. The beauty of Stormlight, though, the beauty of the Stormlight Archive that we all love, uh, is that the thematic connections here are layered kind of all over the place, so this episode is not about Dalinar. If you couldn't tell that by the title, but it's about one of his most powerful foils, and that is Teravangian, King of Carbronth. I don't want to get into too many spoilers here, so I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, and let's say, let's dive into this episode with spoilers for the entire Stormlight Archive, and uh, let's go! So, where do we start with Mr. T? Uh, the beginning, I suppose, is as good as anywhere. Uh, when we first meet him, Teravangian seems anything but threatening. He's the doddering old King of Carbronth, the city known for its healers and its library and its relative lack of being a threat. We barely notice him as he interacts with Shallan and Yasna in Carbronth, but that impression fades by the last section of the Way of Kings, when we learn the truth. He's been bleeding people to death to obtain the death rattles, all as part of his plan to survive the fight against Odium by means of this mysterious diagram. He's been orchestrating Zet's son Sanvalano's murders all over Roshar, and ultimately sends him to kill Dalinar at the end of the book. Why? Well, as I said, it all comes back to the diagram. So let's talk about that then, um, and the reason the diagram came to be. So, fundamentally, Teravangian's part in the larger Stormlight story begins on the fateful night of the feast. Gavilar Colon, the, the man, the myth, the legend, you know, he confides in Teravangian that he has been receiving visions. Visions that we now know are from uh, the Stormfather, basically a recorded version of what Honor wanted to say, only for Gavilar to be killed by Zeth that very night. Teravangian, now desperate and kind of learning about whatever Gavilar was going through, sought two things. First, a gift from the Night Watcher. And, six years later, the assassin in white, Zeth son son Volano. But we'll get to that. So seeking the old magic, Teravangian apparently met success. From his meeting with the Night Watcher, he asked for capacity, the capacity to save humankind, and he was given it, though it came with both a gift and a curse. Each day he awakens with a different level of intelligence, and an inverse level of empathy and compassion. With this capacity, he seeks out a way to stop the forthcoming desolation. And then, one day, we get the diagram. So born on a day of absolute peak intelligence, almost impossible, the diagram represents Teravangian at his best and worst, a complete masterwork of a plan to stop the forthcoming desolation or at least to survive it, with multiple pathways that mere mortals can only hope to interpret. Teravangian on this day effectively, at least to him, became god, or at the very least, on par with the various gods we've seen. Now notably, this diagram, this mysterious plan, its intention is not to defeat Odium, which Teravangian saw as a foregone conclusion. Instead, it seeks to preserve whatever they can, assuming Odium's victory. It's important to note here that the diagram, this, this mysterious document where he, you know, wrote all over the walls of his bedroom and everything in a completely different language to better get his thoughts across, the diagram was created purely by intelligence and extrapolation. Teravangian did not have access to the spiritual realm or any means to see the future. It was intelligence pure and simple. 
Now, along the way, as he is building up this, uh, this diagram of his and trying to interpret it in later days, he learns of the Death Rattles. Created by Moloch, the Unmade, they allow a person to see the future during the brief moment before they die. As Teravangian uses his hospitals to systematically bleed people and collect their death rattles, he's able to adjust the diagram as time goes on, making corrections as events unfold in ways that were slightly different from his expectations. Now, in some ways, the diagram acts as scripture itself. Open to interpretation, Teravangian allows for multiple factions of the diagram to attempt different plans, such as recruiting versus destroying Dalinar Colon, as uh, he disagreed with Graves and the assassins who would recruit Moash. This divinity, this concept of, of being uh, uber-powerful, might actually have a little bit of weight. Well, after its creation, the scholar Dova, who we believe to be the Herald, Batar, approached the organization, warning them of the upcoming desolation. So, we're a little unclear on the timeline here. We know that Gavilar definitely told Teravangian about his visions on the night of the feast, and we know that Teravangian only went to the Night Watcher after that. Where Dova fits into that is unclear, but I believe she appeared after the creation of the diagram, so that would place it after Teravangian's visit. But anyway, through the diagram, Teravangian, his old friend Adratakia, Adrataya? Adratakia? Whatever. Uh, and Dova are able to predict such events as the rise of the Night's Radiant, including abridgment, and they manage to track down Zeth, Sun Sun Volano. They send him to cause chaos across Roshar, and eventually let Teravangian become the king of Yakaved. He recruits the Dustbringer, Malata, to be his spy, and then tries to sabotage Dalinar's coalition and become the leader himself. This obviously fails, uh, leaving Teravangian to make a deal with Odium, trading an honor blade plus knowledge of Erythiru in exchange for Odium sparing the city of Carbronth in his destruction. So anyway, that's a whole lot of um, history nonsense, but let's talk about him. Let's talk about the man himself. I think what fascinates me the most about Teravangian is his relative lack of supernatural aid. By my view, his random day of unparalleled brilliance was just that. Random. A moment of peak human performance, a moment of probability just working the way probability does, that allows for a plan that would change the course of Roshar's history, and an execution on that plan led by people with barely any powers, Outside of Zeth and Malata, but, you know, mostly people without any powers. It's kind of like the diagram was this happenstance, like, when you hit that little plastic circle on the boggle board and it just sort of messes all the letters up. Like, that's kind of what happened. What's then interesting about that is how this concept of the supernatural still worms its way into Teravangian's mindset. Teravangian is an atheist. Like Dalinar, he knows that honor is dead. And Teravangian clearly believes there is nobody out there to help him in the fight against Odium. Except... That is, for himself. His entire organization practically deifies the diagram and the version of Teravangian that created it. He was not as brilliant as he'd been on that day, but he didn't need to be. That day he'd been God. Today he could be God's prophet. So obviously he's got this uncomfortable God complex that mirrors a couple of different characters. Dalinar, for one, who does end up ascending briefly at the end of Oathbringer, and Meredith Amaram, another man who believes so strongly in his own importance and the necessity that he be the one to save the world. Now let's talk a little bit about Teravangian's philosophy. I, I know we're kind of just bouncing around here, but I just like talking, uh, and I hope I hope you guys like listening. Um, so from Teravangian's interlude in The Words of Radiance, uh, when he realizes that the death rattles are moving, uh, there's another quote here, which I'm going to read to you. What now? Did Teravangian suspend the murders? His heart yearned to, but if they could discover even one glimmer about the future... One fact that could save hundreds of thousands. Would it not be worth the lives of the few now? 
So I like the phrasing in this moment, because it echoes one of the most famous lines in sci-fi media uh, from Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Now that's a concept that sort of gets muddled up in those movies, because it's a complicated theory, but fundamentally the diagram is about destination before journey. It lays out the survival of humanity as the only goal that matters, and Teravangian is willing to do anything he can, no matter how distasteful or painful, to achieve it. There's a great line in Oathbringer where Teravangian laments the true curse of being old. Not pain or, or losing his mind, but the knowledge that the tasks he sets out to complete today will not be finished in his lifetime. He's taking actions he knows are evil that he knows weigh on his soul because he sees only his end goal, protecting some small vestige of humanity. And in a way, this very much ties in with his philosophy of leadership. In his talks with Dalinar and Oathbringer, Dalinar brings up an example from the Way of Kings. In this town, I found men bedeviled. There had been a murder. A hogman, tasked in protecting the landlord's beasts, had been assaulted. He had lived, he lived long enough, only to whisper that three of the other hogmen had gathered together and done the crime. I arrived as questions were being raised, and men interrogated. You see, there were four other hogmen on the landlord's employ. Three of them had been responsible for the assault, and likely would have escaped suspicion had they finished the grim job. Each of the four loudly proclaimed that he was the one who had not been part of the cabal. No amount of interrogation determined the truth. Dalinar fell silent. What happened? Taravangian asked. He doesn't say it first, Dalinar replied. Throughout the book, he raises the question again and again. Three of those men were violent threats, guilty of premeditated murder. One was innocent. What do you do? Hang all four, Taravangian whispered. Dalinar, surprised to hear such bloodthirst from the other man, turned. Taravangian looked sorrowful, not bloodthirsty at all. The landlord's job, Taravangian said, is to prevent further murders. I doubt that what the book records actually happened. It is too neat, too simple a parable. Our lives are far messier. But, assuming the story did occur as it claimed, and there was absolutely no way of determining who was guilty, you have to hang all four, don't you? What of the innocent man? One innocent dead, but three murderers stopped. Is it not the best good that can be done, and the best way to protect your people? Taravangian rubbed his forehead. Stormfather, I sound like a madman, don't I? But is it not a particular madness to be charged with such decisions? It's difficult to address such questions without revealing our own hypocrisy. Hypocrite, Amaram accused Dalinar in his mind. He and Gavilar hadn't used petty justifications when they'd gone to war. They'd done as men did. They'd conquered. Only later had Gavilar started to seek validation for their actions. Why not let them all go, Dalinar said. If you can't prove who is guilty, if you can't be sure, I think you should let them go. Yes, one innocent and four is too many for you. That makes sense. No, any innocent is too many. You say that, Taravangian said. Many people do, but our laws will claim innocent men, for all judges are flawed, as is our knowledge. Eventually, you will execute someone who does not deserve it. This is the burden society must carry in exchange for order. I hate that, Dalinar said softly. Yes, I do too. But it's not a matter of morality, is it? It's a matter of thresholds. How many guilty must be punished before you'd accept one innocent casualty? A thousand? Ten thousand? A hundred? When you consider, all calculations are meaningless except one. Has more good been done than evil? If so, then the law has done its job. And so, I must hang all four men. He paused. And I would weep every night for having done it. Now, I love this passage a lot. 
It says volumes about Taravangian's views on leadership and the burden of responsibility. In philosophical terms, Taravangian is a kind of utilitarian. He believes that the overall right thing to do is the path whose consequences lead to the most collective happiness. In his mind, somebody has to make the hard choices and suffer the guilt, because at the end of the day it's the destination that matters. Has more good been done than evil? Does some small piece of humanity still survive? This, much like the perspective of Meredith Amaram, runs directly counter to the philosophy of the Radiance, who represent the ethical view of deontology. They hold that the right thing to do is determined by a set of rules. But what exactly are those rules? Well, those are determined by the immortal words and the oaths spoken by each Radiant Order, journey before destination. As Teft describes the words, there are always several ways to achieve a goal. Failure is preferable to winning through unjust means. Protecting ten innocents is not worth killing one. In the end, all men die. How you lived will be far more important to the Almighty than what you accomplished. Okay, so, now that we've heard what Teravangian's philosophy is, it's obviously, I mean, wrong. I mean, it's not okay to murder someone in cold blood, obviously, even if, it's, even if killing them might be retribution for deaths, or might prevent future deaths. If the law has determined that the person shouldn't be killed, then even if their betrayal led to the death of thousands of your comrades, and even if they're bragging to you in a hallway about how they're going to ruin your father's plans, and even if- Oh. <laughs> See, that's where things get muddled, because Adolin Colin did just that to some degree. He decided to take the law into his own hands, and do something that his father, Dalinar, would never do. It might be wrong to murder someone with a knife through the eye, both by deontology and by the words of the Knight's Radiant, but it might have been the right call in the long term. I mean, obviously, Teravangian has done some horrendous things. He represents the absolute worst of this philosophy. But if we take it to our own lives, how many times do we lie or, or hide something or do something we know is wrong because we believe it'll end up being the right thing? How many lost causes do we give up on because we assume it'll save us pain in the end? That pragmatic instinct we all have is personified to the nth degree by Teravangian. And that, I think, is what fascinates me about this character is that Ultimately, I think we know, or we can assume, that the Radiants are going to win somehow. Maybe at great cost, maybe maybe at great cost, maybe with you know, main characters dying or, or significant losses, but eventually, we think their plan's going to work. But that's only because this is a story. Teravangian has no such guarantee, so he's willing to bear the stains of sin on his soul, if that means guaranteeing success, which is uncomfortable, but definitely makes you think. So, uh, I do want to take a moment here now, after that really weird uh, moment, I want to talk about a, a pretty popular fan theory that regards Teravangian. That is, the idea that his entire plot, the diagram, might just be a master plan of cultivation. That the entire diagram was a ploy of hers, just like she pulled with Dalinar Colon. The theory goes that now that Teravangian is in Odium's debt, he seems to be the perfect plant to somehow trick or betray the Shard and save humanity. After all, we know that cultivation plays a long game. So there's a couple of reasons why I don't believe this to be the case, and I'll admit that this part of the episode is mostly just my own anti-speculation, and not really a main part of the thrust of the philosophy and all that stuff, but I'll go through them because, you know, this is my show, and for some reason you guys are listening to it. Um, I'll just hit the first and most obvious reason I don't think this is the case. Uh, we've seen it before, right? Beat for beat, we've already seen Cultivation step into one of the Night Watcher's petitions with Dalinar, and specifically set him up to be strong enough to defeat Odium. To see that again, I think, would be kind of hitting the same beats in an unsatisfying way. Going on that, I think that relying too much on Cultivation's plans again takes quite a bit of agency away from the characters. I mean, it, it, we've definitely seen Brandon pull off the Shard Longcon twice now, with Preservation for one, and with Cultivation and Dalinar for another. 
At this point, though, I think it's time for the humans to take their steps to forge their own destiny, whatever that means. So tying into that, let's talk about Teravangian specifically. Now we know that the Night Watcher and Cultivation are two different entities, and that Cultivation intervening in Dalinar's petition was a very special case. And yet when Teravangian thinks of his visit, he curses the Night Watcher alone, not some other figure, and he doesn't seem to have any memory loss. So there's no evidence that Cultivation was involved, but we don't know. Beyond that, I think it's thematically more interesting to think of the diagram as a true anomaly. In Teravangian's interlude in Words of Radiance, there's a bit of time dedicated to explaining the probability of having a day as brilliant as the one that gave rise to the diagram, and the odds are astronomically small. Adrotagia points out, however, that improbable doesn't mean impossible, and that sometimes freak accidents just happen. As a result, Teravangian has been thrown into the mix of this, this enormous Roshar plot that's going on, a new player who represents a purely human, well, apart from the Night Watcher gift, approach to the problem of Odium. I think it's a lot more interesting to believe that the singular day just happened, and not because of some intervention of cultivation. Teravangian's choices, for better or worse, and let's face it, for worse, are his own, and he has to come to terms with that, and the rest of the world has to improvise and deal with it. Obviously, though, we'll see what happens. I'm sure that whatever Brandon writes will be terrific, but the only way to find out is to read. So, with that, I'd like to wrap this. Up. So, with that, I'd like to wrap this episode up. Uh, thanks to Kevin McLeod for the intro music. Thanks to the 17th Shard for the wiki information. Thanks to Brandon Sanderson for the books. Thanks to you for listening. We recently hit 10,000 uh, total listens on the podcast, which is wild to me. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, and let me know, you know, shoot an email to worldhoppersguide at gmail.com if you have any ideas for, you know, episodes or things you want to hear about or anything, really. Leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts if you would so desire, because it helps me out. But, uh, yeah. So, I will see you next time.